0: The Nebo Company presents Leading the Emergence, with your host, Kate Ebner. Hello, I'm Kate Ebner. I'm your host today of Leading the Emergence, and I'm absolutely delighted to uh, introduce you to Lee Rainey. Lee is the Director of Internet and Technology Research at the Pew Research Center, Um, He has been a collaborator with me this spring and early summer uh, on a project that we did with Loyola University, really looking at um, the the 21st century leadership and what's required of us as citizen leaders. We've um, enjoyed our conversations with Lee and his uh, deep expertise and knowledge about um, the role of the uh, Internet and of technology in our society and in people's lives. Um, He is the co-author of Networked, the New Social Operating System, and five books about the future of the Internet. He's drawn these books from the research at the center. Um, He also speaks and thinks and helps the rest of us to see and understand um, how what's uh, emerging in technology can shape and influence the way that we work and live together. And I am um, really thrilled, Lee, to have you here with, with me today. And I'm, I feel uh, with this particular conversation that we're all users of technology and we are consumers of it. We, uh, we are excited to see what the latest and the greatest is. But there's a little bit of a, a blind spot we have about where all of this is taking us and about how to understand the impact of technology on our society, particularly in the post-pandemic world. So welcome and thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Kate. Great to be with you,
0: Leah. I thought we could just start by um, uh, maybe inviting you to uh, to to frame for us a little bit about, um, you know, I feel like your your research is so vast and your writing is 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 um, is, is really worth reading for all of you who are listening. But could you um, just start off maybe by talking about? Um, Specifically, as we think about emerging from the pandemic, how has um, our use of technology uh, helped us during the pandemic? And how do you think it's evolving uh, the way that we think about work and life? The pandemic was a gigantic social and economic
1: experiment, disruption. And in many people's lives, it um, required that they become more wedded to technology, that they become deeper and more intense users of technology, and that they employ a wider array of technology tools to get the work done and the play done and the socializing done that they needed to get done. So when we asked a a lot of experts is one part of our research. What will the year 2025 look like after the pandemic has um, really washed through the culture? One of the striking things was that a lot of these experts literally used the phrase that we were moving to a tele everything world. Doesn't necessarily mean that everybody will use these devices and every gadget will be up taken. Uh, but it it did mean that the dependence that we all that a lot of people had on the internet, starting with the moment that everybody was sent home and had to shelter in place for months at a time, that that now is a permanent reality in people's lives. Yes, they will return to their workplaces, their schools, their other social engagements, and things like that. But in many respects, they will now think of technology as a, as a venue, as a set of uh, tools that will allow them to do the things they want to do, meet their doctors, educate themselves and educate their children, socialize in new kinds of ways, shop and buy things in new kinds of ways. So this dependence became a stark reality when the pandemic hit and is remaining even as the, the stresses of the pandemic are easing off on the broader culture. The other thing that we've seen over time when we talk to people about technology use, especially experts about the future, it speaks to something that you introduced uh, as you were describing me and my work. We talk about users and we still do. Uh, and, we, and at the Pew Research Center, we still uh, ask people what technology they use. But we're heading into a world in the not distant future where the Internet will be embedded in so many things in so many ways that it will fade to the background in people's lives. It will be as commonplace as electricity. And yet people will not necessarily know that they are being air quotes Internet users at many of the times when they will be deeply involved with Internet use. in many respects the world that we have been living in where technology was vivid and represented by our gadgets is going to give way to an environment where the internet is serving us in all kinds of ways in the background but not necessarily in ways that we explicitly recognize
0: do you mean um i'm sort of picturing this in my mind's eye and and this i'm sure this isn't exactly what you meant but what came to my mind is I was on a, a Zoom call with a colleague um, the other day, and I asked him a question, and the Siri in his pocket answered. <laughs> and I was struck by that, and so was he. He was quite startled, actually. But what what I'm curious about is when you say that, that the technologies won't be associated quite so much with gadgets, but it will be sort of uh, omnipresent in some ways, is it that kind of a thing? It's sort of all around us, and we're just using it effortlessly without even realizing it or is it more um is it more thinking about um technology as being just integrated into all aspects of life you know from the gadgets in our kitchen to the way that we shop and buy things and so on or something else in fact Kate it's going to be both So at one level, technology
1: literally will fade into the environment. It will be in the devices around us. It will be in our clothes. It will be in the buildings we enter. It'll be in our cars, already is. It will be in the environment uh, with smart streets and sensors in all kinds of places. But it will also be ubiquitous in the smart gadgets that we surround ourselves with. So a little bit of the gadgetry will be evident to us. And a real hallmark, of this new era will be the thing that you described. People will speak to their technology. Many experts say soon enough we are going to have a brain interface, so we won't even have to speak. The technology will be able to impute from what we are thinking uh, and answer our questions or serve our needs in other ways. So it will be both things that that it will be invisible to us. We will exploit it in ways that aren't terribly much part of our consciousness, much the way electricity is now. We don't think we're on electricity unless it's failed us. You know, we don't notice it anymore unless it's not working for us. A lot of experts say that's the world we're heading into in terms of the ubiquity of the Internet. But there are other ways that these sort of massive artificial intelligence systems, robotics, big data Smart gadgetry, smart homes, smart cities, smart environments are going to be part of the picture, too.
0: Wow. Um, That is really fascinating. And I'm curious, you know, like what what about the implications of what you're describing for us? And I know you think a lot about that. And um, I'm curious about when you imagine that world where our technology is uh, both invisible and ever-present in all of the ways you just described, and even within our bodies, potentially. Um, what are we trading off when we, when we move in this direction? Is it inevitable that we're going in this direction? And, and sort of what are the implications for us, maybe, maybe both positively and, and otherwise?
1: When we talk to experts, they will say that some parts of it are inevitable, Either you have artificial intelligence operating in the world and advancing in the world, or you don't. You can't have a midway point. And so that part of it is inevitable. And, And there will be lots of ways that the inevitability is driven by things humans like. It will be a more convenient world. It will be a safer world. It will be a world where we will know our environments and ourselves better than we used to. But you're right to raise the trade-off question because we are as we are better known to ourselves, we are better known to third parties who are tracking what we do and capturing our data and targeting us and creating profiles of us that will be targeted. So the trade-off is to some degree um, a convenience one. We're, we're giving up some things that are not necessarily fun to do. Uh, you know we will have smart agents doing some of the mechanical logistics things of our lives that none of us particularly like, like keeping up our calendar or monitoring our email or somehow staying on top of our social media feeds. People will love that. They will also love that they can order their food more quickly, uh, remotely control the appliances in their homes. It'll all be something that will be quite appealing to lots of people. At the same time, there's a sort of grand scale concern that this affects human autonomy to the degree that artificial intelligence is anticipating our next move, how much are we going to be steered towards our next move? How much are we going to be nudged towards things that the overseers of artificial intelligence would like us to be steered towards? Of course, there are benign and even beneficial things that can come to that, but a a lot of people worry about particularly big corporations having this kind of authority and power over who we are, what we do, what we can't do, and the basic elements of human agency and autonomy that our ancestors took for granted. So there are lots of ways that the next generation is going to bring these almost cosmic scale, existential scale things into relief for us to be arguing about and deciding about in the policy realm and in the corporate realm.
0: I, the word ethics keeps coming to my mind. And I think about the um, substantial work we'll need to do <laughs> to decide what's ethical in this world that, you know, this emergent future. And, and, and I, I think about, um, you know, I I, I think about the, the, what you've just described. And the uh, one question I was going to ask you, Lee, is, um, you know, right now, probably we're, it feels to me like we might be nearing the end of a period in which we feel like technology does what we want it to do for us and that we might instead be entering a period where technology guides us, leads us, and um, anticipates us perhaps in ways that we really like and perhaps in some ways that are a little alarming to us. Um, But I, but I'm curious about that that word autonomy that you used and, and um, the trade-off between convenience and access and, Instant knowledge and all of that, and um, and our autonomy and our privacy. Um, I'm curious, you know, when you think about you and I had this conversation as part of the um, 21st century co- discussion with the Loyola University series. But I'm, I'm interested to just hear what you think we should be paying attention to as these technologies evolve. And they're so exciting on the one hand, and they're also they're very concerning. How do we how do we stay connected and to the issues?
1: The big reason that we do the kinds of expert surveys that we do is that these conversations are very live and very real and potentially very influential heading into the future. The future has not been settled. Uh, We still have plenty of capacity to shape it to our own ends, according to lots of these experts. But it's important to start talking about these kinds of things now. So on the question of ethics itself, which is the gigantic question now confronting the artificial intelligence robotics community, is is coming into relief. and, And there are lots of people who are worried about the control that large technology companies have over these systems that are scooping up our data, analyzing it, uh, and then learning how to use it and predict our next move, they are obviously driven by the profit motive. And so lots of artificial intelligence systems now are organized around who, who's going to buy something and how do we make sh- how do I identify that person and get that something into that person? In the political world, there's, there's a version of that, which is we're not necessarily buying goods and services, but we're buying ideas. So there are lots of ways that actors in political circumstances would like to target people who are susceptible to certain kinds of ideas and certain kinds of wrong ideas and things like that. So there are ways in which um, the current stewards of these systems have a lot of interests that don't necessarily align with the best interests of all of society and the best interests of even individual human beings. So there's a lot of concern about how you get ethics into this process. And one of the starting concerns that a lot of experts have, of course, is whose ethics? Who gets to decide? And there are cultural differences uh, in, in ethical frameworks. There are personal circumstances that dictate uh, ethical considerations, who's on top, who's got power, who's on the bottom, who's going to be manipulated. All of that is so context specific that there are some people who are concerned that that sort of even fundamental ethics can't necessarily be baked into the process. Another big concern, of course, is these systems have already been rolling out for, in some cases, seven or eight years. And these are... Uh, Sort of out in the wild and sort of reining them back in and retrofitting them with ethics is a is a concern. And the other dimension of it that worries everybody is that there lots of the decisions that are made by artificial intelligence systems are kind of in the black box. It's not entirely clear how the algorithms decided what outcomes ought to be achieved and how certain people ought to be given one set of. Of uh, articles in their Facebook feed, as opposed to somebody else who got another set of concerns in their in their Twitter feed. So there are ways in which this is a very messy and very sprawling process. Uh, but a lot of people are thinking about it, which is the really good thing. There are there are, there are global efforts now to tr- to anticipate some of the the worst kinds of problems that
0: might emerge from these systems. I want to go back to the question of implications, Lee, and you know just as you've. Describe that. It was actually enlightening to hear you talk about sort of this this wild, creative, messy, um, somewhat problematic period that we're in. When you think about, um, I, I guess, really, it's the global implications of of this uh, this internet access, right, and 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 to the technological advantages that are coming and and, and innovations that are coming. Um, what are the, I guess, really what, I guess what I'm trying to, to, to grasp is um, whose concern is this, right? Is it a national concern, a state concern, a local concern? Is it a global concern? And what are the implications for us all about what's coming and how we handle it?
1: The governance issues are enormous. We've really never faced anything quite like this as a species before. And One of the things that experts talk about is the arms race in AI and robotics between the United States and China, the two great technological superpowers. And they have very different senses of ethics. They have very different senses of how technology serves the state or serves the public good. Uh, And so there's a sense that the dynamic of an arms race and the dynamic of national security and national interest might supersede global ethics concerns because people got to make sure their country stays on top. There's also local versions of this. Each technology company has its own set of interests. Each jurisdiction of, of the polity has its own set of interests. So there's a big question, as I said before, about who gets to decide what ethics are applied and how they're baked into the process. And there, are, you know, there's a consensus feeling that we, humans ought to stay in the loop, and humans ought to be able to control the off switch, or at least uh, control the um, the the, um, the speed dial uh, on this. And there's a, there's a sense that there's a, there are ways to inject human beings at the start of the process. What's this stuff going to be good for? What are the possible misuses of this stuff before we launch it into the wild? And there are ways to assess the impacts after systems of uh, artificial intelligence are rolled out. You can figure out whether they discriminate against black people or in white people. You can figure out whether they're used to surveil the poor and give the rich better privileges. You can figure out whether higher decisions are made on a fair basis based on a whole lot of equity and fairness concerns. So there're ways in which monitoring these tools is is now very active part of the conversation how you do that, how you keep humans in the loop is is a very active part of the conversation but again there's it's overlaid with this sense that there are competitors doing this and if you know our side doesn't do something that the other side's going to do it, and they might gain such an advantage that that is a, literally a threat to our country's existence, our community's existence, our individual existence, or something like that.
0: Thank you. That was a, a, a great and informative answer, I think, to that question. And um, I want to I want to take us back again. To the to the, pan, the post pandemic time, um, and I, I, I think we're probably premature still to say post pandemic, but it's coming, and certainly the the there's a, a lifting of um, of some of the you know the the constraints and challenges that we've faced at least in this country um, over the past year related to the pandemic. What stands out for me in my work as a leadership coach and as an advisor to organizations is. The struggle to really figure out what it means to go back to work. What's going to stay? What's going to, you we know, are we, what does it mean to go to work? Is it okay to work from home? What about hybrid workplaces? Um, and I'm just curious, Lee, when you think about the future of work and where we are now, um, I believe that we're going to see a mix of things that are similar to before and uh, perhaps forever different as a result of what we've just experienced. What do you see as the future of work? Let me speak for the experts
1: that we asked in our survey rather than just spouting off the top of my head what Lee Rainey thinks. They think there's going to be a transformative change, sort of across the board in life. Certainly in workplaces, hybrid workplaces are now, for many organizations, going to be the reality. Of course, one of the things that was brought into very stark relief during the pandemic was that some organizations and some jobs, just can't be done that way. And there were people who were essential workers who had to show up and do face to face things and engage with the public and expose themselves and their families and their communities to extra levels of risk because of that. And a lot of experts are concerned about how that new dynamic on top of the longstanding concerns about the future of work and how automation might take more and more skills out of the hands of humans and place them in machines. So there's a sense that there's a very urgent conversation now to be had about social justice, and social equity, economic equity, and things like that in this system. But for, for lots of managers of organizations, they're going to have to figure out almost by trial and error, according to these experts, about what works best for them. I mean, we're going to see this big social experiment now in what things are best done when people meet in person and see each other. I mean, there are lots of information conveyed in in-person encounters that isn't necessarily spoken words. And you get a lot of benefit out of that. And clearly lots of organizations want to keep the magic of those kind of encounters as a possibility in their workplaces. At the same time, we've now gone through a protracted period in many organizations where virtual encounters are good enough. They accomplish a lot. Not too much is lost. There's not too much extra waste or or wasted motion in that system. So there are plenty of things now that people can do outside of each other's presence and sorting out almost by organization by organization, which ones are best done in person, which ones can be adequately done in virtual encounters is going to be the biggest management challenge, I would say, of the next couple of years. And there's going to be stupendous literature, particularly in the business school community, about how to how managers can think through what's good for that. The other thing, of course, is um, some of the uh, the, sort of the equity and fairness and and even productivity concerns that come from that. How do you make sure that you treat employees equally when some are literally uh, in your office physically with you and some of them are hundreds, if not thousands of miles away? There are going to be cases where um, you worry that you are just privileging the proximity. You're the person near you. And for no good reason, the person who's remote from you just doesn't get the same care and attention and affection and promotions, you know, the real things that matter in the world and assignments that 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 proximity sort of um, in draws out of people so there's there's lots of ways to do that there are, there are ways to be now thinking about um, hiring processes and the expectations of younger generations now that telework is going to be just one of the elements of a job and corporations, organizations of all kinds that don't offer telework options might be penalized, might not be able to get the talent that they want into their offices, just because this is now embedded in the culture as a reality for workplaces, uh, particularly ones that are built around knowledge work and things like that.
0: Yes. I mean, that's a so many dimensions there that you've named that, um, I know that I'm going to want to give more thought to. And, you know, as I think about, you know, the the conversation we're having, Lee, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, what do you think we should be, you know, what might we recommend that we read or follow if we're interested in continuing to learn more about uh, the impact of technology and evolving technology on society right now?
1: Well, I'll talk about communities of interest and, and sort of places to go prospecting. Because there will be amazing uh, business journal articles that will help managers think through the kind of issues we were just talking about. At the same time, there's a growing, robust community of technology and society scholars who will be studying the social implications of all of the things that have rolled through the culture brought on by the pandemic There, uh, you know, and there's a lot of um, sort of popular literature in and around um, the intersection of technology, workplaces, uh, sociology and things like that. I'm thinking of places like Wired Magazine, the MIT Technology Review. A lot of business school publications now that are oriented around technology or at least have a fair share of their editorial products organized around it. And I think your community itself, Kate, is going to generate a lot of stuff there. The whole um, coaching management um, uh, industrial complex is going to have new things to wrestle with. And I'm sure that there is going to be a blossoming of literature and insight that has come out of the pandemic not least of which is a, a set of ideas around who decides what things best. I mean, one of the biggest challenges I can see and these experts can see for managers heading into the future is is a lesson we learned from the, from the pandemic. You know, there are certain decisions that really would have best been made by the national government in the United States and weren't. There were certain decisions that were often best made at the level of state government. There were yet other decisions that were best made at the local level of public health systems and things like that. So a big new management challenge, or at least one that has now come into into more intense scrutiny, is which layer of the process gets to decide. And one of the always great challenges in the Internet era has been how much authority do you delegate to the lowest possible level so that you don't get management structures and hierarchies that get in the way of people doing their best work, people um, implementing their best ideas, and people innovating at the edges where usually the best innovation comes from. Enormous management challenges about when you do a command and control thing and when you delegate lots of authority. And I think this whole calculation that might have been made before the pandemic about how to think about those things is really scrambled now as we head into the post-pandemic era.
0: Lee, I want to thank you for joining me today, and um, you are the most knowledgeable person that I can think of when it comes to this subject and I know that you are representing the voices of many experts and really bringing to us a a sort of um, well-synthesized perspective Um, and and I really appreciate your thoughts about where we can go to learn more and um, I want to just ask is there anything else you feel would be helpful to pose for us either as a question or a challenge perhaps um, in closing?
1: I would encourage your listeners to be thinking about new alliances and who can you affiliate with outside your organization who's on your team, basically, who cares about the things that you care about, who wants to change the world in the ways that you want to change the world. The great thing about the internet is it's allowed people to find like-minded adjacencies, And there are ways in which now there are new opportunities to find people who care about the same stuff, are literally working on the same stuff, who have ideas to share with you from their domain, from their expertise, and and you can share with them uh, the same way. So I, I think there are interesting ways now that communities of affiliation, communities of interest like-minded communities who are working on um, angles of the same problem, we're going to see a flowering of essentially networked organizations that potentially solve problems in really new, interesting,
0: and rapid ways. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much, Kate. It's great to be with you.
0: It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Leading the Emergence is sponsored by the Nebo Company. If you would like to talk to Nebo about how to support the leaders in your organization, please contact us at www.nebocompany.com. Thank you.